Dear Quest Podcast, Fun's Industry Conversations. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to the Equest Podcast. If you're new to the Equest Podcast, do hit subscribe on your preferred podcast providing channel. If you're a decent person with a kind heart and a good soul, do make sure to hit like and to share the podcast so we can spread the word to the wider community. For this episode, I'm joined by Dennis Slattery, who is a risk expert from a fund management company background. We have a wide-ranging conversation on all things risk-related, from the mindset of the good risk professional to next-gen fund management companies and the kinds of services and level of uh, risk analysis that they're going to perform. We chat about the good practices that you tend to see in the best-performing fund management companies, and we even talk about what the next-gen of risk professionals is likely to look like with their coding skills and their knowledge of technology and fintech. So I said a very wide ranging conversation on all things manco and risk related. Enough of the teaser, let's get on with the show. The Equest Podcast, Funds Industry Conversations. Hello, Dennis, and welcome to the Equest Podcast. Good morning, Danny. Nice to be here. It's great to have you. I've introduced you as a risk expert. Is that a fair description? <laughs> Um, yeah, I suppose we're, we're dealing in an environment where, where things are changing uh, quite rapidly. And uh, certainly I come from a risk background. Uh, I've also had some c- compliance experience uh, in the funds uh, industry. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, I'll accept that today, uh, Danny. Thank you. I, I tell you, are risk exports born just like taxpen and clampers oh, or do they develop over time? I think it's experience is very important. Um, certainly, if you can have a, a investment management experience, front office experience in terms of managing assets along the way, uh, I think it's absolutely um, important. Um, a lot of what we do in the fund side is focused on meeting regulatory risk requirements. But at the end of the day, you must never forget that uh, you're responsible for monitoring that everything is being done in a very safe manner and that uh, investors get the best best outcomes. So it's um, there's quite an awful lot of strands to, to risk. And so it's very important to have quite a bit of experience in the background, touching off various asset classes and uh, different experiences in terms of uh, operational risk and quantitative side, et cetera. So quite a bit in it, yeah. And so uh, I know we're going to chat about fund management companies and and the approach to risk there, but just generally, Dennis, you said you know you have a, a range of experience before you you ended up in in the risk uh, area. I guess that helps you then to to understand better what it is that you're you're looking for. Absolutely. I mean, I would have started my career working for a very small to mid-sized uh, fixed income firm, and uh, it's very much uh, kind of a family-run business. And while you might have had responsibilities in one area, you were expected to kind of help out in others. So you, you got a well-rounded um, early kind of uh, feel for how uh, trading is done, how portfolio management is done and uh, all the interactions and indeed the plumbing of, uh, of, of investment management, which is very important. So in terms of trade flows, you know, from the point in time where a trade is actually put on to the settlement cycle, uh, the, the um, how interactions are done with the various uh, delegates, etc. You learn that from a very uh, early stage, 
and knowing how these things are put together and the, the, the infrastructure and the plumbing of Wall Street, so to speak, having a kind of a feel for that is, is very important. Um, but it's also important in terms of, you know, ensuring that you have kind of a, a broad uh, feel for um, various types of assets. And of course, things are evolving all the time. We have uh, Bitcoin now, we have lots of things going on in the, in the marketplace in, in terms of uh, different asset classes and uh, how they behave, having a feel for those and having a feel for the various uh, uh different points around those asset classes which which need to be taken into account so it's not a one size fits all you kind of have to think of every situation and every product and every investment strategy differently so that can be a bit of a, a challenge especially in an area where everybody's looking to have something different and um, investment managers are in particular trying to di trying to diversify by using different types of instruments to get the same economic exposure to, an, to, to a particular um, investment. And uh, the investment banks haven't stopped in terms of the level of innovation in relation to those things. So it's hard for risk managers to stay on top of all these uh, innovations and make sure that they work and that they're safe and that they're compliant, et cetera. And so when you step from another role, whether it's kind of front office or even legal, and you come into a risk role. What's the mindset then of a, a risk uh, expert, a risk professional? Um, my experience, I guess, when, when I was in the central bank is, you know, the central bank is all about a risk-based approach. So it's very much, I thought, uh, always asking what could go wrong? You know, what could go wrong here? And if I identify what could go wrong, then I can think about how we get ahead of that and either manage, mitigate, monitor, eliminate the risk. Yeah, I think you put your finger on it. I think the you know in terms of stepping back um, and taking a look at the you know we talk about risk profiles and then certainly the, the regulators are very interested to know what your what your appetite for risk is. So you know it's it's very important to start start from there and decide well if I'm going to if we're going to be responsible for the management of these investments. Um, what do we feel comfortable with? And, um, we, you know, that's, that there's several strands to that question. You know, on the, on the, on the investment side, you're look, looking at various items such as how sophisticated or complex is the product in terms of whether it's diversified or concentrated, whether it's using leverage, uh, whether it's using lots of derivatives to achieve that leverage, um, the geographical context of that product and even things like how it's going to be distributed and the types of investors that are going to be invested in it. And then in terms of your, your risk assessment, things like who you're dealing with, which is very important because at the end of the day, the uh, portfolio management function uh, will be delegated or mostly delegated. And you want to make sure that uh, the investment teams and the businesses that you're delegating to uh, um, are properly resourced and staffed and uh, have the right procedures and backing be behind them. So um, it's no it's no one size fits all, but in terms of uh, ensuring uh, initially at least that your approach to risk is properly, I suppose, quantified um, and doing that means having the right appetite statements in place to make sure that you're not taking on risks that are 
unidentified at the start, that you don't have mitigants in place for the risks that you do have identified, and that you have systems in place to properly monitor and stay on top of these things. So quite a bit in that. And of course, we know from recent uh, CP86 and, and even before then that uh, the importance is of buy-in from the business and the board in particular, that they're um, knowledgeable about the types of risks that are being incurred, understand the types of risks and um, are able to kind of um, get a feel for, you know, how much risk the firm wants to take. And um, if, are, if that risk is being taken, how is it properly monitored and quantified? Yeah. Certainly, you know, the, the language around risk, the familiarity that, that, let's say, boards of directors have now, it's a much bigger part of the agenda. It's a much bigger part of the conversation than it probably was even three or four or five years ago. I think there, there's much more focus on, on risk and then how a firm approaches it and manages it. Um, yeah, you think you'd see that as well in board makeup, Danny, in the sense that um, you want to have complementary backgrounds and skills. And it's useful to have people with investment or trading or portfolio management um, expertise on boards um, that can ask the right questions and certainly come up to speed on new investment strategies quickly. Yeah. In addition to your gender diversity and everything else. Yeah. Skills diversity, very, very important. Oh, yeah. But tell me the, the, two, the two key attributes I think for the risk officer are, are one always ask what could go wrong and then the second is it to be a to not be afraid to be the party pooper to to be um you know strong enough to say no when you need to say no or, or do you get to leave that to the compliance guys and let them be the, the bad guys no I, I well there's a there's a third one uh, Danny which is this um you know there's an awful lot of information coming into management firms and fund companies and um, with with it being a delegated business model the risk manager isn't you know is a is a is a second line of defense in so many ways so it's um, the information that is coming in has to be challenged so I would say that in, in, in addition a good risk manager needs to be able to um, verify the information that's coming in um, because it's not enough being told uh, by the portfolio manager let's say that for example they're adhering to their best execution policy for example I just throw that one out there you know you, you need to be able to verify that from from time to time and, and assess that so that's that's obviously quite a quite a bit of work but on your point um, in relation to being able to stand up and say this smells um, or this is something that we shouldn't we should we should discuss at board level as to whether it's right for the business to to sign up this client or to 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 uh, if it's a new investment strategy to make sure that you go through the right types of debates and the risk team should definitely be uh, a central point in any debates around um, new risks that have been introduced to the to, to the firm uh, indeed yeah and I think, um, you know, you reference there constructive challenge and or, or challenge. I don't know if you said it was constructive, but let's assume you're going to try and be constructive. But but challenge, you know, verifying information that you're told, not being overly dependent on one source of information. If that source is the, let's say, the portfolio manager, the investment manager who, who may be uh, somewhat conflicted, but but to have other sources and to be alive to to the risks and to the challenges. Um, well, for example, Danny, uh, one, of the, one of the important things is to have a, an independent source of data coming into the management company so that you can assess for yourself what's going on and draw your own conclusions. Uh, I think that is the case across most uh, funds companies. 
in Dublin, but it's absolutely important that you can assess things for yourself based on kind of independent sources. I was going to say about, you know, ask you about good practices in fund management companies. So when you think about the fund management company that is really at the top of the class when it comes to its practices and how it approaches risk management, what are the kind of things you'd expect to see in, in that business? Is it independent data sources, you know, own risk managers that are, are doing their own thing and, you know, not dependent on information from, from uh, service providers, that kind of thing? Yeah, and we've touched off a few of them all, already, but um, certainly I, t- I take the independent uh, data feed as being a kind of a hygiene factor. I think that's without without a doubt. I wouldn't even see that as a different as a as a as a as a best practice as such. But the one some of the things I do think uh, from my experience um, fall into the whole best practice off the top of my head is that this idea that the management company's risk function, the permanent risk function is very much an extension of the risk management function at the uh, at the delegate so that you know in some ways management companies there's two ways of running a risk team or risk uh, management function one is where you're you're merely the police and you're telling people what they can and can't do uh, the other is where you're you have a, you have you also have this um, this uh, this collegiate um, relationship with the investment management team and the risk management team at the por- on the portfolio management side and that's quite helpful because if you're seen as the police only um, there can be a time where you're not properly consulted pre-trade on a, a particular um, uh, move and uh, that's obviously not good and it's got potential financial implications down the line and, and reputational issues but if you can build a strong relationship where you're seen as a, as a resource uh, knowledge base, whereby investment managers and portfolio managers are calling you up and saying, look, we're thinking of doing this. What do you think? And um, even if it is a no, um, you should be able to have a discussion around how it can be achieved. So rather than just saying, no, you can't do this, Mr. Portfolio Manager, it's, it's very important say, look, tell us what you're trying to do and uh, we'll, we'll talk about how it can be done within the rules um, or whatever it might be. So that kind of collegiate um, relationship with the portfolio management team, I think, is, is one of the things that's that's would set you apart. Yeah. Um, and, thing, yeah. I guess as the good, you know, the good fund management company in a competitive world, uh, particularly here on, on the third party fund manco side, that's element of collegiality or that sense that you can you're you're a valuable resource as opposed to a compliance cost um, and adding value must be a very important distinguishing factor as much as everything else in terms of trying to grow a third-party management business yeah and it's not just an issue for third-party management companies either danny it's also captive whereby you know there's be a risk uh maybe there's a, a, a well there's a risk dp yeah, based in Dublin, and um, there has to be that line back to uh, to the portfolio management team, whereby he's he feels part of the the overall um, team, not just sitting out in the uh, in 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 the domicile of the fund and performing a duty. That's that's really something that's required, and uh, not seen as a proper value add uh, resource in terms of these day to day issues. So that's a challenge for everyone, I think. 
And so that's that's a great point. Um, when it comes to third-party fund management companies compared to captive mancos, what's the what's the difference in approach or the difference in mindset in one business versus the other? Um, because we're we're quite familiar with our, our third-party mancos, but on the captive side, is there a challenge around being the one with the constructive challenge, given that you might be the, the person located in the offshore? where the fund is and not necessarily at the heartbeat of the uh, portfolio management team. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that's critical. I, I think the economics of it and you, you need to have your designated persons integrated into what's going on in, in London or New York or wherever the asset, the, the investment decisions are being made. And I think that's, um, that, that's, that's key. I suppose one of the big things is you're you're part of a larger group when you're in the captive side, and I suppose you know um, being able to you know you're you're there's a, there's going to be an, you're going to be outnumbered in terms of um, when you're sitting at the table in in relation to discussions around compliance and and risk matters and and uh, your home office may not fully understand what the, the 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 local requirements and the regulations are and again we go back to this point of ensuring that. Uh, the people performing this duty in Ireland, they, they need to be able to stand up and be counted uh, for and need to be able to get their point across in, a, in, a, in, a, in order to ensure that uh, decisions that are being made elsewhere are being um, configured in a manner that are um, compliant here for, for these types of regulated funds. And, and you know, you may say that that's, that's something that will, you know, also exist in third party management for third party management companies. But at the outset, um, investment managers are seeking, they're, they're actually seeking your expertise. Uh, it's not as passive. So the, 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 the process of, of, of hiring a third party management companies is you, 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 you want access to the European uh, uh, marketplace and you want a regulated product and you're relying, you're actually buying the services of a company that knows how to do this properly, has done it before, et cetera. Uh, the other thing to mention is independence. You know, um, it's easier to show um, independence in a third-party management company setup than a, than a captive side. But each have their own uh, pros and cons, if you ask me. Yeah. And so, if you're in a captive manco um, and you're drawing your source of information from the same place that your investment management uh, sister company is, you're using the same systems to run the same analysis. Is it hard then to demonstrate you can do something to add value when you're, as opposed to kind of replicating what's already been done in London or New York or, or wherever HQ is? In an ideal situation, you'd have your own data flow, but that's going to perhaps add up. And indeed, most sophisticated institutional managers have invested millions in systems so um, piggybacking off the main group system is not in my book um, um, a problem as such. Where you can make up for that is that uh, if you're reading off the same page, you wanna make sure that you're asking the right questions and indeed um, requesting and formulating and commissioning your own types of reporting that's suitable to ensure that you're, you're meeting uh, your um, responsibilities. So it's all about the questioning and the challenge. And I suppose the, the central bank is very big on evidencing these things. So you, 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 know, you, you need to be um, uh, 
you need to ensure that when you are challenging, that you can back that up and uh, through documentation to show that that you are. And um, that can somewhat be a mitigant to not having the independent data feed coming in. But as I said earlier, I think it's important for managers to have their own independent assessment of what's going on in funds. Yeah, and absolutely, having that evidence is is crucially important because you can imagine if you are a supervisory team at a regulator and you sit down with a firm, of course they're going to tell you what what they think you want to hear. Uh, you know, we put the clients at the center of everything we do and uh, and all of that. But it's your ability to to demonstrate well. This is where we've taken action in the best interests of our clients. This is where we've you know been hit in the pocket to make sure that our clients were were um, you know not affected. And where you've got evidence of that, or you've turned down a proposal or a client or whatever because uh, it wasn't right for your business or, or you weren't happy with how it would treat clients, that's evidence and that's very powerful evidence. But um, outside of that, as I said, if you're a supervisory team, it can feel like you're, you're being told what um, they want you to hear, but without the backup, um, there's not a lot of value to it. Yeah, and I think the, 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 that first example there of um, examples of where you've turned away business I suppose a lot of firms third-party management uh, companies would get a, a lot of inquiries in from um, investment managers that, that you just wouldn't do business with you know they're they're looking for access to regulated product but they they're not credible outfits and uh, you know you could get four or five of those types of inquiries every week um, but you wouldn't give it much thought and you might just say, well, sorry, uh, no is the answer, but you wouldn't document that. So it's, you know, you're always uh, looking for evidence that you've turned away business, but um, there's a lot of business being turned away simply because you want to be dealing with credible um, delegates. And um, it's, but it is important to be able to, to show that and keep records of where you're, where you're turning away business. The other point I'd make, Danny, is not always about turning away business, Sometimes business comes in and you conduct your due diligence and, you know, the, the firm is credible, uh, but there's, there's areas where areas of concern, let's say, and you, you might very well have that conversation with the delegate and say that, look, you really need to address these issues before we can consider launching a regulated product. And I've certainly been in that situation many occasions. And it yeah. could mean you know, having to turn around and say, look, we're going to put a hold on this for some time. And, and there's obviously commercial and financial implications of that. But uh, that's part of the due diligence side. And it's part of the board. The, the board needs to have an understanding of that and making sure that you have adequate timelines in terms of funds launching and onboarding funds and that uh, to make sure that there's proper amount of time available to really get under the bonnet of who you're dealing with. Yeah, and, and all of that demonstrates, uh, and all of that demonstrates that the, the Manco is discerning in how it does business, which is, which is a way of evidencing that they're, you know, that they are looking to do the best for the business and for the clients that they're, that they're going to serve in terms of the investors and the funds that they manage. One of the things we touched on briefly there was we talked a little bit about third-party Mancos and captive Mancos. And one of the things that, um, I think has me tearing my hair out for, for the last while is um, what I see anyway as a, my perception that um, when you look at how ESMA will deal with any discussions around delegation for fund management companies, there seems to be this perception that 
captive mancos good, third party mancos bad. And if you look at the letter that uh, ESMA sent to the Commission, I guess it was this time last year, on the AIFMD review and the priority items, definitely got that sense that their belief was captive is the preferred and, and maybe the best model and, and anything else was lesser. Whereas actually, uh, both usage in AFMD equally provide for both models. We have both here in Ireland when we have a, a substantial third-party manco business at this stage. And uh, to my mind, they're both equally valid models. They're different. The risks associated with both are different, but neither is necessarily better than the other. And certainly this sense that I get that ESMA thinks captive is better uh, I don't think it, it necessarily stands up to scrutiny because you can easily see the risks that exist in a captive business that don't in a good third-party manco, like the independence that you get from a third-party manco. Am I wrong, Dennis? Am I, am I too sensitive to this? Have I I've been in the trenches too long? It could be that ESMA are thinking purely in line in the, in the line of the larger, uh, well-known institutional and investment managers who are, you know, commercially and economically it, it, it makes sense for them and they have the requisite resources and can, can put them in place uh, in Europe uh, to, to, to fulfill their, their, their business objectives. But if you take smaller uh, investment managers uh, with, with, with brands that don't necessarily um, stick out, who are looking, who's, who basically see their core competencies as running money, um, it makes sense to go to a specialist in that marketplace, in that jurisdiction, who can help you structure your investment offering, number one, because that's a, that's a competency in itself, and there's a lot of strands to it, but also able to assist in the various areas of, A, getting to know your market in terms of distribution, um, even things like compliance and how things work, um, these are things that investment managers are looking for more and more. They want these extra value adds and uh, the next generation man mancos will be the ones that are able to service their clients in many, many ways, not just in hosting and structuring, but also in the areas of uh, distribution, um, even things like investor relations, which is very important. I mean, even for in terms of in, in investors who are looking to access these products, there's a quite a bit of handholding required, even for institutional in, investors to actually even fill out subscription forms. And there's quite a bit of work that management companies and quite a lot of uh, goods that management companies can bring on the investor side to make sure that uh, that's a smoother uh, process. And, and even things like fact sheets and compliance and things like that, you might say they're fairly mundane, but every month rolls around and there's quite a bit of work and needed to be done. And it's not always the investment matter in its home office that's in the best position to do this type of work. Um, so distribution, sales, marketing, investor relations, compliance, there's a lot going on there. So Fresma is, is thinking probably, you know, in terms of the, you know, these firms, you know, they're all uh, sitting under the one group. Um, the flow of information might be somewhat easier, but um, in terms of the demand for investment product uh, 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 in Europe, a lot of these investment managers will need a lot of help in terms of um, uh, creating and marketing uh, their product in, in Europe. And the only, the only 
entities that can help in that regard uh, are these uh, these third-party management companies. There's also the issue of the fact that third-party management companies see what's going on across all their clients. Uh, they may be they will be probably dealing with multiple administrators, depositories, and service providers. They're able to get the best rates. They see what rates are around town. They can negotiate better that from from that standpoint based on their overall uh, AUM. So um, if if you're thinking in terms of and Esma should should definitely be thinking in terms of investor best outcomes. Um, you know, it's it's hard to deny that the, uh, the there's the ability of third party management companies to get best outcomes simply because the expertise is there, and uh, certainly in terms of uh, uh, ex uh, keeping expenses down, uh, third party management companies should be well placed to to do that. And thus endeth the party political broadcast on behalf of third party mancos. <laughs> but but tell me this. I, I did like your phrase "next gen mancos." Is that your own, or, or is that a term of art that I haven't heard before? Well, I, only insofar as my experience is that the best management companies are doing more for their and want to do more for their clients. So, if you take a management company that's got a a, a big presence, a global presence, you know, a, a let's take a, a U.S. or Asian investment management firm. Uh, they're already doing business with you here in Europe, but they might, might want to do something offshore. They may want to do something in the United States. Uh, the, the product specialists reside in that uh, third-party management company, and there's expertise there on a global basis to help them not just, in, as I said, with fund structuring, but with all the aspects, all the non-investment management decision-making aspects uh, associated with, with that. And um, it's a one, it can, they can be these next-gen Mancos are, are, can very much be a, a one-stop shop um, that way, I think. Yeah, uh, good phrase. I like it. I'm going to use that from now on, next-gen Manco. And I, I certainly think from a, a regulatory and an ESMA perspective, I think um, it is time to look at and consider separately captive Mancos and next-gen Mancos and understand that they are equally valid but different and they there might be different risks associated with them but to legislate and guide for both rather than to try and regulate one out of existence, which I, I don't think is fair and I, I don't think is the right approach. And I think when it comes to substance, I think that that discussion is over. The CP86 uh, GRCO letter, things have moved on. So I think it's now not so much about boots on the ground, but about mancos, uh, particularly third-party mancos, doing, doing what they do, but better. And you're right in the next-gen mancos, the broader offer, offering and service, the ability to add value and of course what will happen is that that ability to you know pick up the phone to the manco and ask about new product that you're interested in launching and how you're going to market or whether it's on the risk side and you know is this particular investable investment acceptable and if not how can we structure it in a way that that is uh, acceptable all of that kind of value add will become the norm so that if you're a manco that doesn't do it you're going to be quickly be left behind by your competitors because said the baseline will be to get this level of support and by the way as mancos you probably won't get paid for it in the future because it'll just be an expectation as this is what mancos do yeah that's true and it's also a much more interesting way of life for risk professionals i know i'm talking on behalf of risk professionals but um if you're there if you're just a passive hosting business um you want to, these days you want to be able to attract the best and the brightest on the compliance side, the risk side, and, and the DP side, et cetera. So 
Um, the fact that you're operating in a manner that's there, that you're a problem solver is, is very important because, uh, and you have a wide array of investment strategies and funds and clients on your books. I think it attracts, it's more inclined to attract the best and the brightest because um, it's, it makes for a more interesting um, uh, workload, let's say. And you're seeing more. And I think risk professionals in particular, especially those with, on the fund risk side, but also operational risk side, they, 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 they want to see a little bit of variety to the work. They want to be thinking about portfolios and assets and instruments. And, uh, and, 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 and that's, you know, if it's a captive and it's a set of long only equity funds in a developed market and, you know, obviously there's still risk monitoring to be done, but it's, it's not going to be as interesting or as dynamic for the, a captive manager as say a third party management company. But you yeah. could have risk professionals as well who want a quiet life and want a relatively, um, you know, uh, you know a, a much smaller amount of, of funds to monitor, for instance, so a captive will, will suit more in that instance, but it does, it does depend. Nice serene existence. Um, yes. Uh, before we wrap up, one last question, just around fintech and, and the use of technology by fund management companies in the industry generally. Um, is this what you see all firms doing? Like, there, is there, there, there no future in spreadsheets and throwing bodies at a, at a challenge? Is it all about how you use tech, either build it or buy it? Uh, yeah. And do things better? It, there's a few points on, on, on that, but one of the first ones is we're, we're in an industry where there tends to be quite a lot of regular, frequent, uh, daily um, tasks, and they're all kind of replicable. Um, so it's very much suited to systematizing and automating and digitizing that workload. Um, on the risk side, but not just on the risk side, but on the operational side where you have NAVs every day, and where there's various um, the metrics that have to be looked at. Uh, but you, you may be dealing with lots of delegates. You want to be able to aggregate and you want to be able to look through and you want to be able to compare and look at trends and that. So the, there is, a, there is a, a trend, but I don't know how successful it is yet in terms of digitizing the various work processes in this industry. Um, uh, what I would say on the risk side, and if there's any risk professionals uh, listening, is to go and learn uh, to code, and no matter what age you are, um, most, uh, especially on the liquid alternative side, um, risk managers with coding skills are really de rigueur, that people want them now, they, 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 want, they want to hire. And we, you, you're finding with the new coding languages, if systems are built off them, that you'll find risk people instead of dealing with, um, with uh, IT development sides of the, of the business, you're, you're, you're able to get in there yourself and, and tweak, tweak uh, the, the codes uh, to, to make sure that you know, you're, 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 that, that, that you're having a, 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 a solid view of what, what's going on and you're adapting it on a day-to-day -day basis. So, um, and, we, and we've seen quite big transactions as well, announcements around private equity and technology in the fund space over uh, the last while, there's a definite trend there. So whoever does this first in terms of uh, getting things to a place where there's more uh, tech solutions built in um, will, will be the winner out of all this, if you ask me, because it allows the 
again, going back to this idea of attracting the right talent, uh, you want that talent focused on the right things. If, if they're focused on make, stitching together data every day to, to make sure that they can, they can view things, that's, that's obviously not right, but um, there's information coming in from all kinds of sources in the funds business, uh, multiple sources at the one time that needs to be understood and it's still, in my view, across all uh, firms, a big challenge to get that right. Wow. Well, let's wrap it up there, Dennis. We've got next-gen mancos. We've got risk, <laughs> risk professionals with coding skills. We've got every base covered now. Uh, so thanks very much for your insights, Dennis. Very, very useful. And uh, plenty to, to mull over. You're very welcome, Danny. It was a pleasure. Uh, it's great to have you, Dennis. Uh, and thank you, listeners, for tuning into this episode of the Quest podcast. We'll catch you next time. Thanks very much. The Equest Podcast, funds industry conversations.